0: education is more expensive, a home is unaffordable, real wages are going backwards, it's more expensive to have a family, it's harder to grow wealth through retirement. All these steps that older generations took for granted have become a lot more difficult.
1: Hmm, sound familiar? That's economist Tom Walker describing the plight of younger Australians. I'm Megan Wilde. I'm Angie Chan.
2: And I'm Paul Kershaw
1: All the time, we try to tell younger Canadians who are struggling that you're not alone. Something bigger is going wrong. So today, starting with Tom, we're going to show you just how not alone we really are in Canada, people around the world are feeling squeezed by the symptoms of generational unfairness, and we're part of a growing global movement fighting for a better future. Tom Walker is the lead economist for Think Forward in Australia, one of several organizations we partnered with to launch the first Global Intergenerational Fairness Day last month. Now over to Paul and Angie.
2: Welcome everybody. Today, we have Thomas Walker from Australia, just delighted to have you join Squeezes Hard Truths.
0: Hi. Hi, Paul. Hi, Angie. It's wonderful to be talking to you across the oceans today.
3: Our pleasure. Our honor, actually. So to start us off, Tom, we would love to learn a little bit more of your personal story. Specifically, how did you go from an interested, curious, and very well-informed citizen and economist to someone who has dedicated a career to learning about and advocating for intergenerational fairness?
0: Yeah, sure. So I studied economics at university, and from university, I went into a consulting job, which was wonderful, and I learned a lot of things, and it was actually quite a progressive place to work in terms of it was very much about the public interest. But being a consultant, doing work for government sort of inside the tent, I guess, I felt like I wasn't doing enough in terms of advocating for a better future. I was kind of just spending my time writing reports, whether or not they were ever seen or whether they just sat on a <laughs> shelf. It, mm-hmm. it increasingly became, yeah, like I felt like I wasn't doing it enough because I've grown up in this time in the last 10 years as sort of a young adult where we've bounced from the so the global financial crisis the climate crisis is ever present uh, we've got a an awful housing crisis in Australia just like you do in Canada we had a COVID pandemic we've got a mental health crisis now we've got the cost of living crisis the sort of the 10 to sort of 15 years of being an adult just been this constant time of crisis and in all that it felt like my generation, the millennials, as well as Gen Z coming up sort of behind, were getting really screwed over by sort of our economic system, but also our tax system or our housing system or all these different things. And I guess the really frustrating thing was seeing our political leaders sort of recognise these issues and problems, but just doing absolutely nothing about them. It sort of seemed our political system has stopped producing courageous leaders who can think for the long term and make bold decisions for the better. And I think there's a lot of big structural reasons from that, from the media to 40 years of viewing everyone as individuals as opposed to talking about society, all these different things has led to this situation where we've got all these huge problems which are affecting young people and nothing is being done about it. So yeah, I think forward it was this little organization started by um, my colleagues, Sonia and Meg, because they sort of had the same frustrations. So we've been around since 2018, I jumped on board one day a week during our COVID lockdowns because my hours were cut, so I had a bit of free time. And then early this year, I took the plunge just to do it full time and really been loving it, really passionate about the work we do. And uh, yeah, just a, as a professional and a young economist, I think I feel a lot more empowered and a lot more inspired about my work compared to what I was doing before.
3: Thanks, Tom. It's great to hear you just say how inspired you are, and I hope. Yeah, I hope we can hold on to those feelings for as long as we can. Just to set us up a little bit more, you know, what are the main intergenerational tensions that Think Forward is trying specifically to address in Australia?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I guess down under in Australia, like any nation, we have our sort of founding national myths and values. And we say ours are around the idea of a fair go. Our former prime minister, Scott Morrison, was very fond of saying um, sort of a fair go for those who have a go. And I've sort of come to realise over the last couple of years in particular, that that fair go is really incredibly conditional. It doesn't seem to apply to younger generations or the future. And it certainly doesn't apply to other groups like our First Nations people. So despite this sort of national sort of aspiration towards fairness, uh, in all the statistics and the research that us and other organisations are doing, there's a clear there's a sort of a growing intergenerational chasm between those who've come before and the wealth they've built up uh, and millennials and Gen Z who have, due to when they were born, completely fallen behind. The net worth of millennials and Gen Z has actually gone backwards over the past decade while the wealth of older generations has boomed. And so I think young people are waking up to the situation they find themselves in. We're sort of, we're not marching in the streets yet, but we're sort of def- certainly grumbling amongst ourselves. And so we've got record student loan debts, We've got this housing crisis where young people can't afford to buy a home but then they're stuck in the rental market paying record rents to grow the wealth of their landlords. We've had a decade-long decline in real wages, impacts of climate change obviously um, and sort of the unprecedented wealth of the boomer generation who are the wealthiest in our nation's history really contrasts with Gen Z millennials who are falling behind. So yeah, that's sort of the the picture that we see. It's the struggle of younger generations to, I like to talk about sort of moving through the same stages of life as generations prior, like an education is more expensive, a home is unaffordable, in the workplace it's becoming increasingly insecure and real wages are going backwards, like it's more expensive to have a family, it's harder to grow wealth for retirement. All these steps that Older generations took for granted have become a lot more difficult. Yeah. Um,
3: it sounds like you're back basically back. telling the, the, our story. <laughs>
0: <laughs> which, I, which, which I think is when we, we come back to the something that sits above all this, which is that persistent short-termism in our government outlook and the policy they make and their lack of ability or courage to do meaningful reform to address any of these things. And then the economic system which supports people who are already wealthy. So the rent seekers... You get discounts on your tax if you dump all your money into property and you pay less tax than someone who's working. So I think the economic and the political systems are causing these issues, both in Australia and Canada and the UK as well.
2: Well, Tom, I think it's interesting to hear you describe the intergenerational situation In your country in Australia because as Angie just pointed out you could have been you know summarizing the gen squeeze narrative about Canada which we have (laughs) said over and over and again for years but when we look from Canada over the ocean to Australia one thing we're envious about uh, is the Mm -hmm. fact that some years ago the Australian government did begin to publish every five years these intergenerational Mm -hmm. reports which are projecting the outlooks for the economy and, and the Australian government's budget over the next decades, I think sometimes as long as 40 years out. And I wonder 40, if you could yeah. tell me a little bit more about what's going right about those intergenerational reports that are coming out every five years. How are they letting you down and, and not addressing the, the tensions you just yeah. described so eloquently, which we also see here in Canada?
0: Yeah, the um, yeah the intergenerational report, they've, the new treasurer's just made it every three years. Oh, so he's got a fabulous. Real- a real focus on them, Um, and the latest one was released a couple of months ago. So a treasurer called Peter Costello, who's sort of on the conservative side of politics, introduced it in 2002. There's a concern around the ageing population and whether we had the, I guess, the fiscal or the budget position to pay for health and aged care for this sort of big, bulging ageing population that we have. So that was sort sort of the impetus for it. And the intergenerational report, I think, is a really good thing. And for us, it's kind of like the the Olympics. Like, they come around sporadically and we get all this media attention about intergenerational fairness for a week and everyone's talking about the issues. So what the intergenerational report does is it looks, at, primarily looks at the budget. Like, what are the government's revenues over the next 40 years and what are the projected costs going to be? And I think every single one since 2002 has said the same thing, that we don't have enough revenue and the costs of an ageing population are going to push the budget into massive structural deficits over the next 40 decades which I don't know where like people have different opinions on where the budgets deficits are a problem or not but I guess the problem for young people is that if there's a budget deficit the government already uses that as a reason not to invest in services or infrastructure or to cut spending which impacts younger people because they have to spend more money on older people mm-hmm. And the most recent one even started to sort of get into the cost of climate change as well, so projecting like tens, hundreds of billions of dollars of impacts from climate change as well over the next 40 years. The problem that I've seen with them is that they actually haven't led to any policy reform or change. We kind of talk about the issues for a couple of days, and then we sort of just forget about it and move on. Um, and even the, the treasurer, the most recent release, sort of did this really beautiful speech about how he's got this this pilot light of ambition inside him and how he wants to make the future a better place. But then sort of said that any policy reform is a a matter for a future government and kind of just walked away from any sort of action and addressing any of the issues that we see. Which again, I think we have a political problem in that older generations, which is sort of most of the population, are happy with how things are—they're happy with the status quo. Like they're getting all the tax breaks, they're getting all the benefits. This is investments into the healthcare and aged care, which support their future. Which obviously we need to provide incredible aged care. Like that's that's a given. But the intergenerational report should really be used as a tool for government to justify the tax reform we need. But no government, I think, has used it to do that yet, which I think is disappointing. But I yeah I think the opportunity is there, and we we sent a letter to the Treasury saying like what we would like to see happen with the intergenerational report. I think there's a really big opportunity to sort of broaden it out from just looking at the budget to looking at a whole range of different indicators that impact young people, whether that's housing or education or health, or sort of painting the picture of what life's going to be in like 40 years sort of the, it's almost like a visioning piece, and like how do we get there? What policies do we need to enact to get to that vision? And the other thing I'd like to see is that the most recent report, they engaged with like 50 or 60 different organisations about Mm. what's in the report. But as far as I can tell, I've I've Googled most of them, that there was no sort of youth led or young organisations, which to me is just like crazy, like it's our future. Mm. And the fact they didn't even talk to any youth organisations or young people about that, I think is, is shocking. And so that's the other thing that we want to see that if you're going to do these reports, actually use it to engage with people as well. Because then I think it would give more teeth. Like, if you've engaged with younger people and they say they want this, then that puts a lot more pressure on the government to actually act and reform.
2: It's really interesting to hear you describe mm-hmm. these documents, which as documents sound like they have significant potential to inform and shape current policy trajectories. And then you're indicating though that it hasn't yet done that, and we're now almost yeah. a quarter century into having the reports. It strikes me that it reveals this ongoing tension between policy ideas and the political culture of the day. And mm-hmm. in Canada, one of the things that Jen Squeeze is continuing to run up against is that there's this pervasive now outdated myth that those who are most vulnerable in society tend to be older. And while biologically, there's a frailty that comes with our aging, but from a socioeconomic standpoint and thinking about wealth, you know, in Canada now, it's just clear that the majority of wealth is owned by an older demographic, the lowest levels of poverty or baby boom population and those older still. Yes. Do you see that as, as sort of parallel in the Australian case and maybe one of the things that's constraining the ultimate impact that these intergenerational reports could have?
0: Yeah, I think the prevailing view in Australia is that the boomers are painted as rich and entitled. So I think it's more that view than that that they're sort of vulnerable. I think the vulnerable people are sort of older than the boomers. They're kind of the people in aged care who I think everyone has an enormous amount of sympathy for. And we've had a royal commission into our aged care system and it's like the finance from that was shocking. Like we have a terrible aged care system and I think everyone thinks we need to fix that. (laughs) I don't think many people think that the boomers are doing it tough. So I don't think we have to deal with that thing, but it's kind of like... We point out quite often that the fastest growing group of homeless people are like older women, just because there is a portion of older people who are doing it tough. And yet yeah, they don't have a large nest egg for retirement or they don't own their own home and they're struggling as well. Um, so it's in, it's important that we, that we use that context.
2: That's interesting. I wonder what is the cultural disconnect between these reports that are coming out now every three years and the, the policy disruption that the reports would otherwise be pointing to needing.
0: Yeah, so I think over the last couple of decades it's been the sort of the power of older generations. The power, not the vulnerability. That,
2: okay, interesting.
0: Yeah, so they're like demographically, they're just a large cohort of people. And in this process of noticing that an aging population is going to be a problem throughout the 90s and the 2000s, the, the government introduced a range of, policies that would support them grow their own wealth so they weren't reliant on the government so like tax concessions for property investment or owning large share portfolios or you don't have to pay tax on when you retire on your earnings in your on your wealth like there's there's all these things that were put in place that have enabled that generation to become incredibly wealthy and now that they are wealthy they don't want to give those things up it's kind of like loss aversion of, of losing what you have and there's a cultural perception that they've worked really hard and they deserve that and when you point out that well yes you have worked hard but a lot of your wealth has been enabled by paying a lot less tax um, and, that, and that can definitely cause conflict and the 2019 election was a bit of a watershed in that our sort of Labor government or Labor opposition proposed to roll back a lot of these tax concessions, which flow to older Australians. And there's all these town hall meetings with all these older people sort of yelling and screaming about how dare you take away my tax concessions. I've worked so hard and Labor went on to lose an election that everyone thought they were going to win. And so since then, the last four years, everyone's like, right, we just don't touch this stuff. Mm-hmm. Like the the older generations are just way too powerful, like we'll get voted out. The media story is that tax is bad, basically. Like we just don't touch economic and tax reform. Um, so that's that's where we're at. I think even like going to talk to politicians and going to conferences and parliament house and stuff, like everyone knows what the problems are, but there's no political will to address them because no one has the, the courage to, I guess, take on the vested interest. But I think no one has yet started sort of a movement that says, hey, this is unfair, we can build a fairer Australia and try and take older and younger people along with them on that that sort of journey as well. Which is, I guess, a bit where Think Forward comes in because, yeah, millennials and Gen Z, next election, we're gonna be 40% of the electorate. Like we have, that power balance is starting to shift. So we're really trying to educate and advocate around tax reform Sort of shifting our focus, not so much from the politicians to actually educating um, our fellow millennials and Gen Z, and because if we start voting together to try and address some of these inequalities and we're aware of what's going on, being mindful that our vision is to build a better Australia for everyone. Like we're not trying to start a generational war and take things off people but sort of paint that better picture of, of Australia and, and, and a fairer Australia where we distribute our wealth better and we give young people an opportunity and a chance and try and, yeah, Use that shifting of of political power across the generations to our advantage. Mm
3: -hmm. So, Tom, you've hit on again so many common themes that have come up at Gen Squeeze. So, maybe I'll I'll start with this one because you mentioned the balance of power numbers-wise is shifting. Really curious to hear a little bit more about. Think Forward has done some recent surveys on the perspectives of younger generations on the tax system, and would love to bring that voice into. This episode of our podcast, if there's anything that you can share with us and and how do you hope to use that research in some of your work?
0: Yeah, sure, Angie. Um, As you might have picked up on, we talk a lot about tax at Think Forward, which typically isn't seen as a young person's issue. Like, you never see anyone under the age of 40 on TV talking about tax. Like, it's just, it's not really a thing. But we identified it pretty early. It's a really critical component of the intergenerational story and the issues that younger people are facing. So yeah, our first we did our first research project this year. It's sort of just wrapping up in the next month and that was around what do millennials and Gen Z know about the tax system? What do they think? Do they think it's fair? What reforms would they like to see? Mm-hmm. So yeah, we've had the survey for a couple of months. Uh, we had almost a thousand people sort of do the survey, which, which we think is really great. And young people told this story that they're finding it hard to be economically secure And they are recognizing that the tax system is part of why. And so, yeah, we asked these questions, like um like 87% of survey respondents says they don't believe the government's doing enough to support young people achieve their goals. 69% said that they believe older generations aren't contributing enough through the tax system. And so it really painted that story that younger people are doing it tough. They can see that other parts of society are really wealthy and they're sort of trying to work out why it's so hard for them right now to not get ahead but just sort of even keep the head above water pay the rent pay for their student loans when we did some sort of videos around the different tax rates that different people pay and so our tax system means that a young person with a with sort of a student loan from the government pays more tax every year than a property investor who earns twice as much or a, a retiree who pays no tax even if they've got like a three million dollars worth of like shares like it's this system that supports people who are already wealthy over the people who are starting out yeah. and that means that that chasm between those who were born at a particular time versus those who were born sort of in the in the 90s and more recently that leap from I guess economic insecurity into economic security is is become really challenging for lots of people and I think the thing I really liked about the survey is we gave the opportunity for young people to talk about what they would change and they talked a lot about fairness and a robust and progressive tax system. Like they weren't asking for tax cuts. They would rather pay more tax and roll back tax concessions. And we've got these massive tax cuts coming online next year where everyone who earns over $45,000 just just gets like a big tax cut. Hmm. Um, And they want those repealed as well. Like they're happy to pay tax, but they just want to invest it in great public services. They want infrastructure. They want fairness between what everyone pays. So. I think that's a really positive vision for the tax system, that there is support for progressive, robust tax system instead of this view that tax is bad and we just need to cut taxes and government gets out of the way. So I think that really differs to sort of the prevailing economic narrative that we see. And I think that's something we can really build sort of a movement around that, hey, we want a progressive tax system. We want a great public services. We want to support older people in, in ageing. So, yeah, I think it's the the survey's been really yeah, inspiring in that regard, just, just reading through all the responses about what young people want, that real sort of collectivist mm. view of the world, not as sort of, give me tax cuts and I'll be happy.
2: How does your discussion about taxation in Australia engage with the following issue that I think must be very similar in your country as it is in Canada? So when mm. Baby Boomers started out, there were about seven working age adults to pay for every retiree. And it was at about the time when we started our medical care system, our publicly funded medical care system, and our publicly funded retirement income security programs. And we, as a result, we, we set out these tax levels that, hey, when there were seven people contributing, you didn't need to contribute that much for every retiree. But we didn't put in place a revenue collection system that would say, by the time baby boomers retire, we can tell that there's really only going to be like three working age people to pay for every retiree. And so how have you engaged with that issue in Australia when you're thinking about a fair tax system, a progressive tax system?
0: Uh, Yeah, it's a, it's a big issue. And yeah, so it comes back to the intergeneration report. Like we've known that there's going to be this issue for like two or three decades. And our government decided the best approach to deal with that was to make baby generation really wealthy as opposed to them having to rely on government, which I mean may or may not be a good idea. So this is where these tax concessions come in, this is where we introduced our superannuation system Um, and the reliance on people needing the pension has is declining like really rapidly so people are going to be a lot more self-sufficient in retirement which does relieve a bit of the pressure on the budget. But we're still going to need to find more money to pay for aged care and aged care services and the problem with trying to make everyone wealthy through all these tax concessions is that it has eroded the tax base and if anything I think it's gone way too far and now there's a segment of the people who are way too wealthy sort of destroyed our property housing market because um, people just dump money into housing and they get tax concessions to do that which means that people who don't have a house can't afford one but Older people are rich, so yay, they can support themselves in retirement. So the plan kind of made sense. Like, we'll make older people wealthy so they don't have to rely on the government and it doesn't destroy the budget. But it's had all these unintended consequences over the past couple of decades in terms of how our wealth is distributed and things like the housing market being ruined. And now we're in a situation where we can't get rid of any of those things. So there's tax concessions or tax handouts of making them richer and richer and richer, which means they also pay less tax than they should, which means that those younger generations who there's now less of them to pay for, those older, larger generation who in retirement um, are having to pay more income tax to make up for the the tax concessions. Like they these like these are world record tax concessions. Like they're 100, like a hundred billion dollars a year kind of money that is flowing in the wrong direction. So Yeah. Hmm.
2: That's an interesting parallel with our country. I I don't think anyone would describe Angie. Do you think that our strategy in Canada has been, oh, we're going to aim to make baby boomers wealthy so they don't have to rely on our retirement income support?
3: Never heard that.
2: Yeah, that's not a narrative (laughs) we have in Canada. But we definitely do have a range of tax breaks that shelter income from pension, shelter income in, you know, once you turn 65 from taxation. And we certainly certainly have in canada this just massive generational tension about housing affordability and housing wealth inequality mm-hmm. and so it sounds like you're suggesting that you know accumulating wealth via housing has become a you know a pretty dominant strategy in australia yeah. that that is something that you know disproportionately older folks just by virtue of when they were born have been taking advantage of how does that play out in australia right now in canada housing is the dominant social policy conversation.
0: Yeah, same. Yeah, it's number one. Yeah, and has clear generational divides between the homeowners who are very happy with the current situation because they, they buy a home and then the tax system supports them to buy a second one and then a third one and then a fourth one and then a fifth one. And then Australia is one of the only countries in the world where if you rent out your property and you make a loss, as in like your interest repayments are higher than the rent you receive, then you can put that loss against your income from working. So property investors pay much, much less tax than people who just work. Hmm. Yeah, which younger generations are getting pretty fed up with. Like that's one of the key findings from our survey was that they want these uh, tax concessions which encourage property speculation to be removed. Just to just even the playing field. Like if you rock up to buy a home and you're competing against someone who's already got a couple of homes and they've, no, they're going to get their tax breaks like you, you've got no hope and the prices just keep going up and up. And then, yeah, the rental market's a mess as well because you've got record rents as well um, We have terrible rental protections. Um, so, yeah, housing is the number one issue and the, our government is responding. Like they've introduced a housing sort of investment fund where they're going to draw down money every year to give to like developers and, and housing providers to build more housing. But again, it's just it's sort of a, a band-aid solution that still relies on property speculators and property investors to build the housing. Like it's just feeding the same system. Because again, they don't want to touch tax concessions because they know it'd be really the political blowback would be really strong. So just, they just remain in place and the situation gets worse and worse.
3: Yeah. The, the kind of um, deck stacked against younger generations that you're describing is again, like it's the same picture here as well. And at Gen Squeeze, we've sometimes been accused of pitting generations against one another. And then at the same time, though, we've been accused of being too kumbaya and that we should take the gloves off um, with baby boomers. And it's a very fine balance. So I wonder how you guys walk this balancing act and how you bring those notions of collective vision um and solidarity into what feels like a really long and hard battle sometimes
0: yeah very similar experiences again we we get a lot of feedback that we should drop the use of fairness like intergenerational fairness Hmm. because well the feedback we get is that it makes people defensive because if you're talking about fairness then you're kind of implying that the current generational situation is unfair and I am absolutely
2: yeah, implying that. I'm just, i I'm not implying it. I'm stating that the <laughs> facts actually demonstrate that. Just to cut in here, if anyone's curious about where we stand on that, just want to be explicit. Yeah, it's, um, data are pretty clear.
0: Yeah, agreed. Like the data is very clear here as well. But it's just how do we, if the issue isn't the data and the statistics and everyone knows what the problem is, that our, our challenge is the change, like mm-hmm. the reform. Mm-hmm. And do we take older generations along with us or do we just get really cranky and just yell at them a lot. <laughs> and we've started to sort of shift our language a bit towards from intergenerational fairness to intergenerational care. Hmm. And I've been sitting on a government task force all this year about how we reform and pay for aged care. So there's something our, our national government taps us on the shoulder, like, hey, we putting together this task force, do you wanna be a part of that? So sort of demonstrating that we do care about people of every generation and that they're supported by our economic systems and our government. Because we think that using that positive framing and the positive vision of what Australia could be, if it was fairer, and we invested in young people. Like I like to talk about like, imagine if instead of giving like tens of billions of dollars to the already wealthy, we gave that to young people to like get an education, start a business and have a family and have a home. Like imagine how great the future would be if we invested in young people. And I think that's a story that older people can get around. And we do get lots of emails from older people saying that they're worried about the future and they're worried about the legacy their generation's leaving behind. So I think we can, can work with older generations. And I think through being on the aged care task force, I think we proved that, that we do want to work across generations. And now those peak bodies that work with older Australians are working with us on other projects and they're joining us in a coalition to like call for an inquiry. And like, mm. I think there is an appetite to work across generations. But we also do get like an email this week from someone who read something of ours in in the paper, and they're like, "How dare you!" And like older people have worked hard, and just because you young people all went to university, you think you're better than us. And like there's still the the cranky, like really defensive people that we have to deal with. That's kind of like, given that yeah, younger people are 40 percent of the voting population now. There's plenty of older people who want to work with us. We don't. I don't think we need to waste our time being combative with the people who don't want to get on board, and we can just sort of get out of the way
3: at some point. I'm really curious, who are the groups of people then that you feel are already engaged or are the sort of next concentric circle that can be brought along in the movement?
0: I think there's large swathes of older people who yeah, are worried about climate change. They're worried about the future. They're worried about the legacy they're leaving for their kids. And they have that view of the world that's that's still based around community and what's best for everyone and they're willing to forego some tax concessions or they realize that they have enough and they're they're willing to advocate against their own personal interests for the better of society and future generations. Like I think there's millions of people like that from older generations. Mm -hmm. We hear from them quite often and they gravitate towards what we're saying because hopefully it is a positive vision of the future of sort of a fairer distribution of wealth and opportunity. But yeah, like it can be a battle because the people we're talking about are sort of the corporate wealthy individuals who do like to defend their money and their patch and a lot of the time they have a lot of power in the media and power in politics as well. So it is also going to be a battle as well and you're never going to win over everyone and if we get enough people then hopefully over the next yeah, decade we'll see that more reform and a more positive vision for the future.
2: It's really fascinating. You've mentioned now a couple of times that, as a result of your work on this task force uh, focusing on what you call age care—that's sort of what we call long-term care in Canada, so care for mm-hmm. seniors—that uh, now you have allies who are, you know, you know, from groups representing older interests, join you in calling yeah. for an inquiry yeah. in Australia to focus on generational fairness.
0: Yeah, I think it's our clearest ask. We would like. Parliament to begin a parliamentary inquiry into intergenerational fairness it sort of it replicates sort of a model that was used in the UK so they had an inquiry in the House of Lords it released a lot of findings which I think would be very similar in Australia around the lack of long-term thinking and sort of an endemic failure of governments to think about the future and future generations and all the impacts that flow down from that so we think that'd be a really clear starting gun on this conversation between younger and older generations to get all the evidence on the table about how, yeah, our tax and economic system are impacting people at different stages of their life. Like how's it impacting students or how's it impacting people who wanna buy a home or how's it impacting people in aged care? And just sort of find out where the issues are and and have that conversation. Um, And from there, we can do the reform and improve things because we've had this conversation together with both sides of politics and and people from different generations are more than welcome to do submissions. And and we think it'd be a really valuable way to sort of kick it off, basically.
2: What's your thinking about why the inquiry will have more success at ultimately transforming policy in Australia that your intergenerational reports every three to five years haven't so far achieved?
0: Yeah, I don't think there's any guarantee that, uh, given everything I've said about the intergenerational report, that inquiry would spur any action. But firsthand experience and stories are really powerful. The intergenerational report is statistics, whereas this is about young people telling their stories about how hard they're doing it. And the sort of the community process is that there will be seven or eight politicians from both sides of parliament listening to these stories, engaging with what's going on. Um, and I think there's an opportunity for that story to be really powerful that we're not looking for handouts we just want a fair go right and back to our national value of a fair go, the inquiry would talk about that a lot the lack of a fair go for young people and I don't know politicians like love to talk about young people they're always like, oh youth unemployment and we want an education and supporting young people and Giving that another push, and it might not work, but I think it's a really clear ask, which really helps when we when we're talking to our political leaders about next steps. As of yeah, as opposed to burning everything down and economic revolution, <laughs> it's a real clear, neat ask for what we what we want to do next.
3: Well, it's Thursday, so today we'll ask for an inquiry, but then tomorrow it's Friday and we might ask for some real radical um, strategy and tactics.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. the hope from the inquiry would be that there'd be recommendations around implementing some sort of yeah generational fairness task force like you guys are talking about or like a future generations commission or some sort of mechanism which means that policy going forward from that point considers younger and future generations. Mm. So yeah, we look at the current situation out of that. We recommend better ways of doing policymaking going forward.
3: Thanks Tom. Well, I, I have two more questions. So my first is you've been doing this for several years now, and Mm -hmm. no doubt you started off thinking one thing. And at this point, You must have learned some profound lessons over this amount of time and just curious to know what jumps out at you as some of the things that really sort of Mm. surprised you.
0: Yes. um, The major one, I guess, being a young economist who knows my way around an Excel spreadsheet and data is that evidence often doesn't matter. You can write a beautiful report, lots of nice graphs, put it in front of someone and they're just like like so what like it's so much of this is about storytelling political power building a movement and that's been a real shift of thing forward over the, sort of the past little while is that yeah our plan was to be like a, an inside track like think tank like we'll just produce evidence and convince people that these are the issues and this is what we need to do but increasingly bolting onto that is like well we kind of need to build a movement around this and educate young people and build political momentum for change, because everyone knows what the issues are, but nothing's being done. So we need to build pressure, and that's done through collaboration, storytelling, movement building, education, not making nice graphs and tables and charts.
3: Mm -hmm. One that we can relate to, I think. And then let's leave off with this one. Can you tell us about a time when you saw progress happening an experience when you thought, ah, yes, we're moving closer towards intergenerational fairness, even if it's a small step? Gosh. This is supposed to be the hopeful moment to end.
2: (laughs) I wonder if we, maybe it's not going to be though.
3: This is actually the highest pressure question we have for you. I
0: think what's really inspired me over the last couple of years is that millennials now, like we're into our late 30s, like even early 40s now, like we're coming into positions of power. And I think we have a really great values and worldview that I think is really positive for our country. And even we had a series of Australians of the Year sort of back to back in their early 30s, and they're just fierce brave advocates for like disability or gender equality and just seeing those younger voices start to pop up in media and politics and and talk so passionately about a a fairer future I think is really inspiring like I think I think we're starting to surf a bit of a, a bit of a wave here now about what we want for the future yeah that's what I find inspiring and it's Not just think forward, like it's bigger than us. Like I've met so many people from different organizations, whether it's like groups like Oxfam or academics who are all sort of seeing the same things, whether it's the need for tax reform or housing reform or action on climate change and how all these pieces fit into like a bigger picture of a a better future. That's what I really love seeing.
2: Well, that really is a hopeful note on which to end this really fascinating conversation with you, Tom from all of us at generation squeeze i want to say thank you to you and your think forward team members for the work that you're doing to provide a model that inspires you know us in countries around the world as we ultimately are looking for a, a planet to work for all generations so we take our hand yeah, out to you and absolutely uh, and
0: really say thank you thank you paul thank you angie thank you for inviting me on like it's 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 wonderful to talk to people who are doing similar things
3: yeah we're not working alone To
1: learn more about Think Forward and Generation Squeeze, check out the show notes and our website, gensqueeze.ca.